Thank you. Thanks for the lovely warm welcome. And I realise there's a few empty seats today with people on holiday, so good on you for coming out on a holiday weekend instead of sleeping in. Um, so apologies from Stu. He's actually in Myanmar at the moment um, uh, doing some work with our local team over there. Um, so if you're not familiar with Circuit and with us as a couple, I'm just going to spend a, a quick few moments just giving you a, a brief overview of what we're doing and then an overview of what we have been doing um, since our last visit. You may remember that Stu was struggling with kidney stone issues when um, a year ago and we went straight from church to the emergency department and he got admitted that night. So um, he's in a much better place right now, you'll be glad to know, and um, yeah, um, he's remembering to drink lots of water when he's in a hot country. So um, to start with, I'll get my little clicker which is hiding here, let's see, is that going to work for me? Yep. So you'll see Circuit International, um, and we work in Myanmar, Burma, and have been doing that um, since 2007. And our main focus, let's try that again. Click on you. No, that's not going to work this time. Oh, there we go, good. Our main focus is through business, um, we want to do sustainable community development so that the um, farming communities that are living below the poverty line of less than $2 a day and then have no choice but to send their children into prostitution in Thailand or sell them as brides to um, families in China that where there's a shortage of girls, um, that we can deal with the root causes of those issues by helping get them out of debt slavery. So, you'll see the, are you doing the things for me now? Or is that, was that me? That would be great if you can. So um, the problems that we're facing, which if you've been tracking with us for a while, you'll probably already know, are the extreme poverty, the opium and meth. And um, because a lot of the farmers, they find that the best cash crop is opium, even though they would prefer not to have to grow it. That's, that's um, the best way to make money. Um, forced migration into Thailand and Burma, as I mentioned, and often um, through trafficking rings, uh, poor infrastructure, and then conflict since the 1950s. So it's actually the longest running civil war in the world, and it still is happening. You probably um, have seen on the TV the Rohingya, who um, have had to flee to Bangladesh. Um, but this war has been going on since the 50s and is kind of an over uh, one of the results of the colonial era. So you'll remember a couple of years ago we had a, a silo bagging machine imported, which was a way for us to be able to help the farmers um, store their grain at the end of at harvest season so that they could then sell it for a much higher price once the um, market went up again. And then this year, um, after our matching funds month, and some of you very kindly contributed to that, so a big thank you to those of you who were part of this, um, we added a grain drying machine so that when the grain is dried, 
um, then it um, can be sold at a later point for a much higher price as well. So it's always to add value to the farmer's product and then um, help them make more profit to keep them out of debt slavery. Now for us, this was a bit of a big um, faith um, activity because we're going up against the um, conglomerate in Thailand, Burma, Asia, that basically um, forces all the farmers to be able to buy the seed and fertiliser and then is what causes them to get into slavery because they screw down the price that they get at the end of the, of the harvest. So for us, it's like being David um, up against Goliath. And if you got our newsletter, you would have seen a picture of our um, manager of our team in Thailand, uh, sorry, Burma, with a stone in his hand saying, yes, we are David, we have the faith to actually go up against this. And, and this is where we really appreciate your prayers because we know that there's a lot of, um, you know, spiritual opposition to what we're doing. Here's one family that we were able to help just to give you an example of how this actually works. Um, one family who uh, you'll see there, the grandma's Bamat and her um, uh, daughter, husband and granddaughter, and they have some other children as well. And because of being part of our seed bank program, they were able to um, make enough money at the end of the growing season to send their older kids to school in the next township. So that included boarding fees and transport fees. Um, and also to be able to make a contribution to the community fund for bringing electricity to their village. So that was pretty exciting for them. Here's Stu. Um, so an update on this program. This is from a few visits back. He's standing in amongst not a flower garden but an opium poppy field. Um, and if you are familiar with our work, you'll know that one of our programs is coffee for opium replacement. So where we're up to at the moment is the community leaders asked us to put a seed bank in that community so that we can get the farmers up above the poverty line as preparation for then changing from uh, opium to specialty coffee farming. So that's where we're up to with that. And also as part of um, what we have done with the money we raised for in the matching funds month, we've taken on two more staff to be in charge of the grain um, drying program and also to be in charge of a trial coffee farm, which we'll be starting up um, in the next year next to the capital city. Because this um, program that um, you'll see here is actually in a black zone or a conflict zone where, uh, where foreigners usually can't travel. So that's a quick update and just wanted to say thank you to you guys as a church and as individuals who have donated to these programs that are bringing um, hope and God's light into some of these dark communities, and to our sneezers. I don't know if you are marketing people or not, but basically that's the people that talk about what we're doing amongst your friends, your family, and just get the word out there. So we'd love you to do some more sneezing 
And um, if you can think of anybody who might be interested in our charity, because we're a New Zealand registered charity, which gives um, tax deductibility, which is a bonus. Um, I'm quite happy if you go on your phones while I'm sharing the next bit of the message and look up um, our website or our Facebook group and then share that with a friend who you think might be interested. So just think about that if there's somebody that um, you'd like to, to um, sneeze on. So we do have uh, Compassionate Christmas alternative gifts coming up in a couple of weeks. And Inez Conway is very kindly um, offered to be the advertiser of that in the months of November and December. So there'll be about six different gifts that you'll be able to um, choose from that will benefit farmers in these communities that we're working in. My favourite is the bunch of fluffy ducks. You can buy a, a little flock of five ducks for a family, which is a little way of making some income. And so that would be a fun gift to, to give somebody. All right, so going on to the next part of um, what I'd like to share. But just before I do... If you um, don't get our emails and you would like to, what I'll do is I'll get my lovely assistant, Kerry, down here just to, to um, send the email list through. If you'd like to sign up, I know a lot of you are already on our email list, and that's the way you can get emails about the Christmas campaign coming up as well. So what I want to share next, how are we doing there, the second one, is more from a personal perspective on what um, Stu and I have been learning over our, since 2000, so we're talking 18 years of working cross-culturally overseas in particular, but which I feel like is probably relevant for a lot of you that are working with people of different backgrounds, religions and faiths in New Zealand as well. So I've titled what um, I'd like to share, A New Face of Mission, Serving the Last, the Least and the Lost. So if some of you have been following mission work for a long time, you'll probably notice, thinking back to perhaps your parents' generation, that mission work, uh, the style and the methods used um, has changed and is continuing to change. And there's a saying that the only constant in life is a change. And you guys are going through one now with having your drummer and your keyboard player, <laughs> or maybe somebody a bit more important than that, um, prepare to leave and having to look for someone new to take over. So we all go through change. So I'd like to start with a Thai proverb. So this Thai proverb is Gop Naigala, and it says, like a frog in a coconut shell. My daughter used this proverb in her admission essay for medical school, um, and it was titled, Leaping Out of My Coconut Shell. So basically the proverb is talking about a person who is in a coconut shell, like the frog, thinks that... Um, they know everything they need to know about the world. They're in their comfort zone, and that's all well and good. But there's this whole other world outside. And as you can see, um, 
us as a family, and I'm sure a lot of you too, want to be like the frog leaping out of your coconut shell. If you asked me what's one thing that I think is the most important for people doing cross-cultural work overseas, other than having a rock-solid faith, it would be being a learner. That, to me, in any ministry, not just cross-cultural, is what I think Jesus modelled and also what we need to keep reminding ourselves, especially if you were born white, if you were born male, and if you are born from a family that has been able to afford to send your kids to university, to own their own house, to own a car, to go overseas for holidays, then there's even more reason for you to consciously be a learner because you are what we call a person with privilege. So I'm just going to share a couple of things, um, lessons from a couple of missiologists. Now, I've never used this, that word before, but as I was talking with my spiritual director last month, she said, no, you need to share what you guys as missiologists are learning because that's your field of experience that people in churches want to know. So just this is our learnings, may or may not resonate with you, but I hope that it will be of some use. So the first thing that we've noticed is that there tends to be stages of faith development or spiritual development. Um, so when you first become a Christian, it's what we call the simplicity stage. Um, and it's either you're for us or against us. I need to save my grandmother who says she's a Christian, but she's not really because she doesn't go to church and stop her from going to hell. And so it's actually very black and white, and life is like a war. I'm sure most of you can relate to that phase of your Christian life when you kind of cringe, thinking about some of the things that you said to people or the, the kind of very black and white um, ways of thinking that you had. The next stage is what we call uh, the complexity stage, and that's when you start to realise there's actually more than one way of doing things. There's more than just the, the charismatic way of doing church. There's the, there's the Anglican, Methodist, there's the Catholic. Are they really Christians? There's the Mormon. Are they Christians? And you're starting to realise that life is a game and that you need to learn to play it in the way that best suits you by looking at the other options. Then the third stage is the one that gets uncomfortable. It's the perplexity stage. It's the most uncomfortable for the people in that stage and for the leadership in the church of people going through that stage. Um, so it's when you're starting to realise, okay, so everyone has a different opinion about these things, so how do I know who's right? And it's when you start to realise life is a mystery. The more I learn, the less I know, the more grey areas there are. And I think for a lot of people that, as Christians, go to university, that's the time this stage really hits because university is making you question your, the faith you've, you've been brought up to believe. And the ideal is that you continue growing through that phase. Some people get stuck at that phase, which is sad. 
um, but we can continue to pray for them that they'll grow through to the stage four, which is the humility stage. And that's when you realise that you just need to get back to the basics. Strip away all the arguments about the peripheral stuff and focus on love and unity. And so life is more about what you make of it with God's help rather than blaming the religion institution for the things you don't like. So I'm sure some of you can kind of relate to some of those stages. And what's been interesting for me um, since coming back to New Zealand is thinking how we also as mission workers or as cross-cultural workers also have been going through a stage of um, development as well. So one of the tough questions that we have had to ask at various times in which our kids, of course, were asked at university was this one. Is mission work colonialism? Is it paternalism? Funny they use paternalism and not maternalism. I've kind of thought that too because I think for guys it is harder not to be in that position of power and take the position of humility. I can say that because Jew's not here. <laughs> God's talking. So, <laughs> so I've been doing some study this year um, as part of my professional development, a Master's in Transformational Development through a Christian uni in Australia. It's a course that was started up by the ex-director of Tear Fund, um, Australia, and the paper I was doing this um, last semester was called Doing Theology in, a, in the Context of Injustice and Poverty. So I love being able to get together with other practitioners from all over Asia um, and kind of talk through the nitty-gritty of what, what that actually means. And as part of this um, intensive that we had in Melbourne um, for a week. Um, our study co cohort led the devotions one morning and what we chose to focus on was what Jesus looks like in the context that we're working in. So I'd really like you to think about that as we look at some of the, um, the different um, options that I'm going to talk about. But first of all, in answer to that question, is mission work colonialism? The next slide is one answer to that. Not if you take the posture of humility. Now, humility is quite a Christian word, but they're actually using that in the secular cross-cultural work scene as well. Here is a quote from a guy called Craig Greenfield, who used to be a servants missionary in Cambodia and has now started an organisation working with the slum kids and taking them to holiday camps, like Christian holiday camps, um, because he felt that was a real need. And so he came up with this definition of having a posture of humility. Rather than taking the posture of an expert... Take the posture of one who seeks to explore. Discover together with local people how the teachings of Jesus 
might be applied in their context. Ask questions, listen to advice, and invite ideas. And I was actually talking to Claire Russell about this, and she said, yes, servants itself has moved through um, a stage of development where they're now not encouraging so many white families to go and live incarnationally in the slums, but Christian families from within the cultures like Cambodia or from other Asian cultures coming in so that there is that more level um, playing field or level relationships because the power imbalance is just so, um, yeah, it just changes the dynamic of cross-cultural work. So humility, cultural humility, as I mentioned, is something that people in the non-Christian work context are talking about as well. And I came across this article that had been written by um, someone who'd done studies of doctor and nurse and client or patient relationships. And they were saying that now, instead of doctors being trained to have cultural competency, they've decided that's not actually helpful because what was happening was after these professionals, doctors and nurses, were given cultural competency courses, they actually ended up um, almost becoming arrogant um, and making assumptions about their patients based on the little bit of training that they had rather than asking the patients and finding out what each individual situation was all about. So then they decided rather than focus on cultural competency, they are better to focus on cultural humility. So in their words, in the secular sense, that incorporates a lifelong commitment to self-evaluate and critique, that's us as the people in the, the more powerful work situation, to redress the power imbalance in the patient, uh, the physician-patient dynamic, or whatever your scenario is, and to develop mutually beneficial and non-paternalistic partnerships with communities on behalf of individuals and defined populations. So, what's so bad, bad about being paternalistic? It's that kind of thing, father knows best, and as we know, for women that can be a hassle. And also paternalism basically is that thing that can cause toxic charity where people are kept in a dependent situation and lose more and more of their self-confidence and belief that they can um, get out of poverty themselves. So I just wanted to go through a list of the things that we've intentionally put into our work as international development charity, especially in the last three years as we became an independent Kiwi charity and we had a lot more power to um, tailor our programs. And just um, for your benefit and the hope that there'll be something that will resonate with you in your work situation. So to avoid paternalism... Um, the first thing we did was have a local face and name for our work in country. So that was decided for us. We needed to have a local foundation, which happens to be called the Love Conquers All Foundation. 
and a local um, name, it's not even that in English, and then a local uh, field program manager. The next one is community-led initiatives. So you've probably heard Stu talk about how we decide what program, well, we don't decide, that's, that's how it works. We go into the community, communities and say, what do you need? How can you see a way to um, s solve that problem? And how can we help with some seed money to start that? So the intention is always there that it's the community that have decided. The next one is community rather than individual benefit. And I think as Westerners, we often assume that it's all about individuals we need to focus on, but that's not the non-Western way of doing things. Non-Western way, which I think is actually better, more Jesus-like, is that community focus. What will benefit our whole community? And thereby it keeps accountability um, and the ownership factor. So um, like I mentioned with that family, being able to make enough money both for their children's school fees but also to contribute contribute to getting electricity into their community. Next one is fostering unity and the transfer of knowledge across communities. So for us, and this was also, mm, God really brought this about more than us, is that we have a group of different ethnic cultures, different religions, different backgrounds, some university educated, some more farming labourers, on our local team, and that is a super amazing example to other people in the communities that we have unity within our local team. Because, especially with Christians, I'm sad to say, in Asian countries, they are encouraged often to cut themselves off from the Buddhist communities um, or Muslim communities or whatever. So this is a, a different kind of example. And then we're encouraging the communities, for example, the one we did our first seed bank in, um, to then train the other communities who are wanting the same program, rather than us being the ones that are doing that initial training. The next one is equal representation of men and women. And that's quite hard. Even in New Zealand, you know, that's something that we were talking about in um, women's suffrage um, celebrations, that we still haven't got that down in New Zealand. Um, and in other cultures, that's something you have to intentionally make sure we ask for women to be present at the community meetings because ideally we want a 50% um, representation and then to have women on our local team who are going out and um, managing the projects. Next one is that whole thing of business to create a sustainable income. Um, so I was just thinking of your model here with the business centre part of the Lane Park Church and just how because we often need to these days to pay the rent, how that's actually a wonderful model that we combine the business and the development, community development work so that it creates sustainable income. And then the last one is the end game is that we want to do ourselves out of a job and we want to be able to empower the local leaders to take over and to be at the point where um, they can actually change things 
um, to suit them and that we won't be offended once we start to step back. So that's just what we've been learning and you know, I appreciate that a church like this has given us the freedom to kind of do things in a non-traditional model. Um, most of the time we don't call ourselves missionaries when we're overseas. We sometimes don't even use the word Christian. We um, call ourselves followers of Jesus because of the, the damage that's been done historically by colonists in, in the name of Christianity. So the bottom line, why do we choose to work like this? It's a lot more complicated. It's a lot, more, it's a lot slower than going in like um, a lot of uh, secular businesses do. But the bottom line is we feel like we're modelling um, the Jesus way. And one example of that is if you remember the story in the New Testament where Jesus came across the cripple and um, who was asking to be healed. And at first he said, your sins are forgiven. But then he said, take up your mat and walk. And I believe those two things were almost as difficult as each other because he was asking the man to have the faith that he could actually get up. Jesus wasn't going to... Um, pull him up or say to him, oh, if you want to go to the next town, I'll piggyback you there. I'll leave you my cell phone number so that whenever you need a ride, just call me and I'll piggyback you there. No, he wasn't doing that. He was, he was um, making the man be part of the healing process and finding out he could walk by himself. For us, with our, our local leader, um, of our local charity, Tunza. He was having a conversation with Stu just this last week while they were doing the grain drying. And we have a lovely um, Christian businessman, Sean Christian businessman, who's given us the land to be able to put this drying machine on. But because he's grown up rich and, and even as a Christian, he still has a very, very different way of relating to all the local team. So he'll come in and he'll basically shout at them and tell them, do this, do that. Don't do that, you stupid person. And it's just very, very common, the whole hierarchy in Asia, that that's, that's quite acceptable. So Tunzar, our local program manager, was saying, this is where we can be different because humility is what we need in order to work with these communities. And so what he's needing is not for Stu to go in and tell him, from my experience in education, I think you should do this, this and this. But he is going in, Stu is going in and helping um, Tunza work out the big picture. Because often when you're um, in a very poor situation, you get into survival mode and you're just thinking about how to make money to survive this week or this season but what we can offer is having that big picture vision of where we want to get and then breaking it down to those small steps. And then for Stuart, um, it's important for him and for me too to restore that honour, dignity and ownership. Honour is super important in, in Asia because it's an honour-shame culture compared to Western culture, which is a guilt-blame culture. Um, and so that's really important that we don't um, make people lose face and dishonour 
the knowledge that they have because of course they know the situation better than us. They live in it um, 24-7. So in summary, what's that all about? It's the upside-down kingdom of God. And it's recognising your privilege, recognising the power you have. And often when you're in positions of power and privilege, you don't actually know um, you've got that until it works against you. And then um, realising you need to intentionally sit down and shut up sometimes and just listen. So here's a few pictures I want to show you of what Jesus looks like in the context of those we love in his name. And as I show these, I'd like you to um, think about what's a new face of mission or Jesus for those in your circle of influence. So the first one's a cartoon. You may not be able to read the words, so I'll read it for you. So ladies, thanks for being the first to witness and report the resurrection. We'll take it from here. So for many women, they've had very negative experiences of the church or from Christian males. They may have experienced sexual abuse or violence. So their Jesus needs to have a face of maybe a mother, not a father, because they may have had damaging experiences um, with fathers. In fact, I've heard that Christianity should be considered a woman's movement, considering the fact that the majority of Christians worldwide are actually women. So that's something to think about. The next one is something I came across as we lived in Thailand. So this is the picture of Jesus suffering, which is very confronting for the Burmese and Thais who are Buddhists, because when you're not... Um, a Christian, and, and I heard this said by people that went to see the Passion movie and saw how Jesus died, they said, wow, he must have had really bad karma to die in a way like that. And then to actually make the next step to realise, yes, he actually took all our bad karma on him. The next one is one that I've been seeing on my Facebook feed, working with um, refugees and asylum seekers, Jesus as a family of people escaping Egypt as a refugee, Jesus as someone who was imprisoned and was in a situation outside of his control. The next one is one quite different that actually meant a lot to me in 2003 and four when firstly uh, my mother-in-law committed suicide and then the tsunami happened in Thailand and at that time I was going through burnout and I just everything seemed just too heavy um, and it was very hard hearing the stories of the refugees that we were working with. And this picture was what God brought to my attention of Jesus the laughing fisherman, the Jesus that said it's okay to have fun I want to laugh with you as much as I want to cry with you and the people you work with. And then this last one I'd like you just to, to um, look at carefully as I read a passage from the Bible. So it's a picture that was given to be, me by one of my colleagues on my course who works in Australia. 
um, with street people and some of those are people of other cultures. And when my Burmese friend saw it, she said, oh, why are all the people women at this last supper? And then she said, oh, yeah, of course, because they're the ones that are often considered lower and lesser than the males. So just have a look at that as I read this verse. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. So looking for Jesus in the face, in the faces of the last, the least, and the lost. What does Jesus look like if you closed your eyes and tried to picture Jesus right now? What does Jesus look like to you? Is he someone who looks a lot like you? Chances are he is. Or is he someone that would be stopped at immigration because he looks like he's definitely from the Middle East? So I just want to finish with these three questions um, which I want to encourage you to think about as you go into the week. So firstly, what have been your learnings this week about faith and daily life and loving those less privileged around you? I just want to share my learning from yesterday, which is still quite, quite raw for me. I went to a funeral yesterday. <clears throat> of a former refugee lady from Burma, who's a wife with three young boys in her 30s. He'd only been in New Zealand less than two years and was so lonely that she committed suicide. She was a Korean Christian. She was from a Christian community. But the problem was the government had put her family in a housing block in Newtown instead of in Porirua or Lower Hutt where all the other Korean families live. And she just got so lonely, that's what she decided to do. And for me, sitting there at the funeral in her home, it just reminded me, I have had my focus on helping people in Myanmar because I feel like there's a lot less people there supporting them. But it just challenged me. I could have said to her, can I give you driving lessons so that you can um, have some mobility and thereby catch up with her? Or could I at least give you some rides out to Porirua to see some of your friends? And it was a real challenge to me yesterday. So the next question is, what can you learn about someone from a different culture, religion or background who Jesus is asking you to walk alongside? It only needs to be one person. 
And then how can you start a conversation this week by asking, what do you need, rather than assuming you know what they need? The um, Burmese lady who's on our board has said so many refugees get given clothes, get given all sorts of things for their homes, but what they're just really desperate for is friendship. And so that's, I think, across the board, isn't it? It's not just them. So I just want to finish with this um, just to explain why we chose the symbol for our circuit logo of wanting to learn, wanting to understand, wanting to respect before we were able to give, wanting to, to find out what can the people we're working with teach us and challenge us in our faith about thinking like a community and not an individual, things like that, um, in order to do true um, true ministry cross-culturally, and I think it relates to in our communities here too. So let's just pray, and um, I'd like to pray for Stu and the team in Myanmar as well, and then just once we've um, had a short prayer, then I'd like to ask your permission to take a photo of you guys waving because I will send that to them and that will really encourage them to know that you guys have been praying for them. So let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you've called each one of us to be light bearers, hope bearers in the communities in which we work and live. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us the eyes of learners this week as we go in and see people's needs. And instead of being in a position of power, assuming we know what they need and how to meet those needs, to actually take the time to sit with them, befriend them, and ask what they need. And Lord, we pray especially for Stu and Tunza and the Love Conquers All team. We pray for their work this week, getting the um, grain drying process and um, storage process um, fully operational in time for the harvest next month. And we just pray that through the relationships that these locals build, that your light and your hope would seep into some of the darkest areas in Shan State. We pray against spiritual forces that are wanting to keep the poor um, downtrodden. We pray against that, and in Jesus' name, we pray for liberation for these communities. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So, if you don't mind, I will just take a little video, and thank you for the lovely music in the background. <laughs> so, what you could do, actually, I, I'd love to video it, if you'd like to say, after I say one, two, three, if you'd like to say, we prayed for you, Stu, and the Love Conquers All team. How about that? Is that
blessing on you too that you will be light in your communities.